just past 7 o'clock. Another massive show on tap for you tonight. It's time for Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo along for the ride as well. And Ira, you must be exhausted. I, I know where you've been, but I don't think everyone else does. So uh, talk about what you've been up to these past uh, couple of days. Well, day and night. I mean, it started <laughs> when you start the day and it's dark and when you end at night uh, walking around. But I loved it. Uh, walking around the Honda Classic for the program on Wednesday and then four days of the tournament covering it. And then I had we did like 20. 20 live remotes uh, that we had brought in for every every uh, hour on the hour. Yeah, uh, go ahead and um, uh, I'm sure if you were listening to this radio station over the past four days, you couldn't have missed Ira. <laughs> you heard plenty of uh, of him broadcasting live from PGA National Resort and Spa. So Ira, it was a good tournament, and uh, you know we got a a first time winner, and so that's always exciting. Rookie of the year last year. Um, what's your thoughts on on Sung J M in general and how everything went down? Well, first of all, the give a lot of credit to Ken Kennerly and the staff, another phenomenal tournament, someone who goes to tournaments all across the country. It's just, you're just impressed by just everything, just the small little details, the staff, how hard everything is organized. People get there early, they stay late. Uh, the, cor- the course was in magnificent condition. I mean, mm-hmm. the superintendent, when they, to, to lay it out, you didn't hear, I mean, it, here we had a challenging course, but you didn't hear about, oh, the ball was on the green and rolled off and rolled down and there were crazy little things that happened. It was just a challenging course. Uh, I just was impressed with the whole tournament and going into it, you're like, is this going to be Ricky Fowler's tournament that he's going to win and some other big names? And then with the final day, I was saying, Tommy Fleetwood, 29 years old. He's won five tournaments in Europe. He's number 12 in the world. This is his coming out party in terms of America for his first win. Uh, after this, he's going to win 15 tournaments, 10 majors. And I followed him. And then Sun M comes up and has this win. And then you're thinking, oh, well, a nobody. But he really isn't a nobody. He's 21 years old. He was the rookie of the year last year. He loves to play tournaments. He played 35 tournaments last year. He's played 18 so far, 14 so far this year. And maybe Sun M is, when we look back five years from now, might be one of the most accomplished golfers in the field. So we could have seen history in the making, I guess, yep. with Sun M. So, Ira, you mentioned that it was difficult. And it was. <laughs> um, this was technically the hardest non-major since 1996. Not a single golfer shot five under par for the entire four days. That hasn't happened in 25 years. Absolutely insane. So they lived up to the mark of the bear trap and, and all that uh, difficulty level. Um, so before we get into you know all the, the breakdown of it, I saw something interesting online. And, and a lot of people, people from around the world, not people from South Florida, we're saying they really loved to watch this on TV for the reason that there was no massive star monopolizing 90% of the coverage. They got to see the course. They got to see all these different players in the different spots, um, you know, try to traverse the bear trap and all the different things that go on here that we get to see by attending it. But you don't see technically on TV if you've got a Tiger Woods that, that's in the field that they're showing him the whole time. So I thought that was an interesting take that I wasn't expecting. I think the other great thing about this tournament is that – the idea on Friday to make the cut, it wasn't make the cut and that's nice and you'll start out early on Saturday. It's like Mackenzie Hughes made the cut on the number by hitting a putt on the eighth hole, which is his next to last hole, mm-hmm. made the cut. 
He ended up winning $760,000 and finished in second place and had a chance and for a moment was leading the tournament just by making the cut. You also had a situation on Friday where Zach Johnson uh, had the lead and when two, within two hours, he was trying to barely trying to make the cut. And I think the swings, the fact that it's a bunched up field and that no matter how far ahead you are, nobody got more than two to three strokes ahead of, of on the lead, that they could all come back. And also somebody, there are, were birdie opportunities if you made the right, if they made the great shots to get those birdies. So I think the fact that there you have 69 golfers that were out there playing Saturday and Sunday and almost everyone felt like they had a chance. And because they did. And it's exactly the way you said it. The, I, I think the best score I've ever seen win is an 11 under. And it's usually around what we see. It's usually five, six, seven, eight under par that wins it. There's no guy that's 18 under that you're just buried. Well, I made the cut, but I have no chance. The Honda is so wide open for everybody. And I think that's why we do have a mixed bag of winners, superstar to unknown, to superstar to unknown, because really anyone can win it. Well, even there's two par fives on the course, and they're not gimme birdies. And we, you, you saw what happened with yeah. Fleetwood on 18, in the ball in the water, and, and, and bogeyed that hole with the chance to win. And then Brooks Kepka played uh, one over par his, uh, four a par fives, a three and the 18. And I think it's neat. The, the course is unusual that you have the par five on the third hole, and then the par, next par five is on the eighth, 18th hole. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's really no par. There's no easy. You don't, and, I, and the golfers keep saying, there's not an easy shot. There is not an easy. There's nothing they could just say. Oh, just coast and get it in because it's difficult <laughs> with the wind also. And it was it was very interesting when you're out there on the course like I was, following the golfers every single shot. You saw even a guy like Brooks Kepka who loves to play fast. I mean, Brooks during that he was in the pro am. I think he got done in like 45 minutes playing nine <laughs> holes. He just like running through and hitting it. But d- during the tournament, he would stop, go up to the ball, pause. They would throw the grass in the air. But of course, throwing the grass in the air where you're at doesn't mean where the apex of the ball. What the <laughs> wind's going to be and like we could be sitting there in the middle of the fairway there's no wind and you look on the green and the flag is you know straight like on the moon almost it seems like so it was difficult and people would back away i've saw so many people go up to the shots back away the consultation with the caddies a lot of interaction when you're out there on the course uh looking at one club putting good to getting another club going back into the bag i mean even brooks i think one time three times changed his club trying to understand where to go because it was really hard you would have your book but it's where the wind the wind was not a consistent and, oh, this is what the wind is on this hole. This where it was like they're not sure. It was windy, cross. It was mostly a crosswind, and sometimes it blew a lot, and sometimes it didn't blow at all. It's uh, it's definitely interesting to see. Yeah, some of their the judgments once the ball gets in the air. Um, Ira, before we get into our uh, breakdown of it all. We got a massive guest coming up at 7:30 today. It's Billy Ripken. Tell us about him if anyone doesn't know who he is. Well, Billy Ripken was a 12-time player uh, in the major leagues. He's of course the brother of Cal Ripken and the son of Cal Ripken Sr., who was uh, a longtime coach for the Orioles. He's also a, an analyst on MLB Network. So he just wrote a book called um, "Stay to Play: An Old School Guide to New School Baseball," which is great because I think everybody—it's not this analytical breakdown. It actually says, "Wait, we might have gone a." little too far I, I, and he t- talks about like the dirty world words in baseball and and like wins <laughs> people don't want to say they say these stats that don't matter he thinks still matter mm-hmm. I, it's really a good book it's not that it's not an analytical book I would encourage everybody to get it but we'll have love to have Billy on talk to talk to him about uh, his book and of course about the Astro scandal and baseball in general so it's about 20 minutes away um, Ira let's talk about it you were there every single minute possible um, the pro-am uh, what was that that's Tuesday it's Wednesday 
Aggies, the Pro-Am. Um, tell us about how that went down. It really wasn't that excitement that I was... They only played Kenny nine... Kenny G's always there. He, Kenny G's always there. It was really Steve Spurrier. There were no other celebrities. And the pros only played nine holes. So they would play nine and then switch off. If you paid for someone, you got two pros. But I followed Kapka and I followed Fowler. I got good pictures with the camera. So I like going to the Pro-Am. But that was the one day it was going to be rain. There was going to be rain in the air. So they, they really sped it up. It was okay, but I, you like to see the celebrities there. But it, it was so... And all in all, it was a good chance for me to with a camera to take pictures of uh, Fowler and Kepka. Let's get into Thursday. Tournament kicks off and uh, not good from the top. <laughs> well, I think I decided, look, I want to follow in the morning very early. Uh, they, they they went out in threes, of course, in this tournament. And then they put the, the Fleetwood, Herschel, and Justin Rose uh, at 10. They started, it was like at 7.45 in the morning. And uh, so I thought this is a chance that Fleetwood, this is, I really want, I was going to this tournament really, Tommy Fleetwood was the favorite. He was 12 to 1. I mean, look at look at the, the Fleetwood is 12 to 1. Kepka 12 to 1. Fowler 12 to 1. Kepka and Fowler missed the cut. Justin Rose 22 to 1. Missed the cut. Louis Olsen 25 to 1. Missed the cut. Victor Hovland, the, uh, who was supposed to be the great best 21-year-old from Norway, he 28 to 1. He misses the cut. Um, Sunjay in who won, it was 30 to 1. But it was interesting that these these favorites, it was hard to pick which one I want to go with. But I followed Fleetwood, Herschel, and Rose. And, her, and Rose Rose did well. I mean, he was out driving, played really well. It's so one of those, tw- those rounds, though, that uh, he went on. He went in the water. Uh, he doubled on 15, right in the water, and uh, and that set him back. So he was plus two for the day. But he has a chance, really, to. to admit, that's how you miss the cut. I mean, you look back where you're going to miss the cut on days like that. And uh, Fleetwood was sitting a really, actually, a very good score. But then he had, and then he had a double, but hit a bogey on seven and a bogey on nine, and finished even. So, but but still positioned himself well. But the key was Fowler. Fowler started the day, bogey, bogey, bogey. And he ended up plus six. He had seven bogeys and one birdie, which is not like, so we didn't really have that whole rate of the double or triple bogey. He just didn't play well. And that was, and again, we talked about Fowler can't, he just, I thought he could get, just get out to the tournament, take the lead, mm-hmm. just was not able to do that. And then sort of, I mean, still had a chance to make the cut, but didn't, but was, and still had a chance to win. I felt if he made the cut, he was still, of course, in it. But then in the afternoon, I followed, uh, followed Brooks Kepka, Matt Wolf, and Keith Mitchell, the defending champion who we had on our show. And uh, Brooks was plus four for the day. Uh, he had a triple bogey on six when he went. That's It's called the bird hole. They have these birds, and they look like from <laughs> Jurassic Park. And there's water. It's called the bird. It's an island. And it's a natural island. These huge birds fly around. You saw it on TV. It's just amazing to be on that on that hole. And he hit the end of the water twice on the same hole. And he's the number three player in the world. And the... Uh, and, the, and it's the fourth, that sixth hole is a par four. It is the fourth hardest hole in the PGA Tour, which is um, all the, the events they play. And then he had a birdie on seven, but then he double bogeyed on nine. Uh, and then on and 18, he hit it in the water. Like it was a disaster for Brooks all around in terms of the tournament uh, for that first round. And, and Keith Mitchell ended up having a five over par. He was... Uh, he just started. He was struggling, but he had a triple on number eleven. He went in the water mm-hmm. there, and then on thirteen, he went in the water and, and had a bogey. But after after the day one, Harris English. This is where Ken Kennerly gets credit. He gives sponsor exemptions. So Harris English. Uh, from Chattanooga, like Keith Mitchell, uh, went shot a four under, and Tom Lewis from England shot a four under, both on sponsor exemptions. So you have two <laughs> sponsor exemptions who are leading the tournament. 
No, uh, good choices uh, by Ken, as he always does that. I mentioned before on this show, he had Brooks Kepka as one of these sponsor exemptions about eight years ago. So he saw something coming. Um, let's talk about Friday. Well, Friday, Kepka started out early. So he started off on 10, and that's where, okay, now Kepka's going to make this. We're going to see what happens. But on 13, he double bogeyed, hit the ball in the trees. Then it, there's, it was just a complete disaster. And then he was right from nine feet, he three putted. It was like less than a foot away, and he was so disgusted with himself. And he just missed the putt from a, from a foot away, and then he got a chip and birdie on five. But then he just he hit in the water on on the on, on the uh, chip and birdie on the second hole. But on the fifth hole, he got on the water again. And uh, on the eighth hole, when it was all falling apart, he actually broke his club, which is. But it, it, people say that Brooks doesn't show emotion, I, and I don't think the reporters mentioned that. Well, he, he did. He was emotional. He wanted to win this. Like I, <laughs> I, some of the criticism I thought was unfair. I mean, he's just getting himself in shape. He had knee surgery three months ago. He's out there playing on his home course. I get Brooks a lot of credit for coming to the Honda and playing. And uh, clearly, I mean, I, I was listening to the commentary and some of that are like, oh, well, he doesn't try hard. I mean, he's out there trying. He wanted to win. It was just he's just just off. And I 100 percent thought he wasn't going to play just because of the injury. So, yeah, like you said, to get out there and do it, recovering from surgery. Good for him. And then after he was done, he signed the autograph. He went for the little kids, signed autographs for like 20 minutes. Then talked to every, signed every autograph that someone wanted. Then he talked to the media. He said his knee felt great. He felt that he hit the ball well. He said he had a, bad, a few bad holes. And he says putting was a disaster. And he's, um, but he's ready to play in Bay Hill and ready to go. And I, I, everyone's like, oh, what's the matter with Brooks? What's the matter with Brooks? Well, they keep saying it. What's the matter with him? And he just keeps winning majors. If he wins two majors <laughs> this year, that's what's going to be the matter with him. He's only had 18 <laughs> rounds since October. Uh, and, uh, and he's entered... Uh, six events, missed the cut twice and withdrew twice and finished no higher than like 12th place. So, but I think he's going to, this was a bad missed cut, but the fact that he played, I think was great for the tournament. And I give a lot of credit for, for really supporting the hometown tournament. Was he the most followed guy or Fowler? They were. They weren't. They were. Uh, I would say that it was close. Uh, I would. They. They weren't playing at the same time. So yeah. that was. It was. Uh, but it was. It was one thing. Is I think for the first days. I think it's whoever played in the afternoon would have a, a better following. That was the, the key. Was and Mitchell. He started the day plus five. That was on Friday. But he doubled on ten to go plus seven, and then he bogeyed at the next hole. But then he played fair, but he just couldn't get back into it. He actually finished uh, uh, plus seven for the tournament mm-hmm. p- for the first two days, and the cut was plus three, so he missed it. But he he, you know, it's like unfortunate. I mean, I, it was nice because he was on my on our show, and he, I thought, and I thought that Keith Mitchell, as a defending champion, did everything, every interview, everyone to talk oh, to. He was a great ambassador. It was the, one of the best ambassadors you could ever have for a defending champion. And then um, I followed Fleetwood and Ro- I started following Fleetwood and Rose. Uh, they both went in the water on fifteen, which cost Rose. Rose was actually in the field at plus two. He goes mm-hmm. in the water and that made him plus four. And then Fowler was all the excitement. Ricky Fowler was at he was just flirting on the cut, cut line, and then he bogeyed at uh, thirteen and fourteen. He had a long birdie on fifteen, and then he goes to eighteen for a chance to make an eagle, and he has like a fifteen foot putt. If he made the eagle, going from five to three, would have made the cut line, and he just missed the putt. So <laughs> that was. But in the end, the uh, the the day the winner the leader after Friday, I guess, would be Brandon Steele. Uh, who was uh, who last year lost this year lost in the Sony Hawaiian Open, uh, but he he ended the day he had a he had almost had a hole in one on the 15, which was uh, just have been the second on the other golfers had mm-hmm. a hole in one, uh, but he had a hole in one on the 15, and then uh, but he bogeyed on 16, birdied on 17, but it was he ended the day five under par and and take the lead and you had Luke Donald at four under Lee S Westwood four under Woodland was at three under, uh, but it was one of those tournaments that you saw where Westwood it's like where's Lee Westwood come from I mean, he's yeah. like 
yeah. 30th in the world. He's won 40-some tournaments around the world. 2010, he was number one. He's been six times. He's been the second or third in a major. He's 46 years old. Someone asked him in one of the questions, they go, have you liked your career and everything? And he looked at the guy and said, I'm not done. I'm still playing. Like, I don't, what are you talking about? I'm not, don't write my obituary yet. <laughs> and then Luke Donald was number one in 2011, 56 weeks with Rory. Um, and it was great to see him out there. And actually, um, Luke Donald's brother is catting, was cat, was, was Brandon Steele's caddy, which is interesting. But they, the fact that these two veterans, Donald's 42, Westwood is 46, uh, that they were in the mix the entire weekend, I thought was really cool. To have names like that up there was great. But for, after, the, after two days, uh, 14 players were three shots off the lead. And look at the people who missed the cut besides Brooks and, and Ricky. Uh, Justin Rose, Louis Ostasen, Keegan Bradley, Jim Furyk, two-time defending winner Patty Harrington, Vijay Singh. So last year, the top four, Singh, uh, Fowler, Kepka, and Mitchell, all missed the cut. <laughs> Victor Hoglund, who everyone who had won the tournament the week before in Puerto Rico, the 21-year Norwegian. And then Jim Herman, who we had on our show, uh, just went on the cut line, just had plus four and just missed the cut. You know, it's funny you bring up uh, Luke Donald and Lee Westwood. They were guys that I was following when I first started covering the Honda 10 years ago. Because like you said, they were at the top of their game then. And they live across the street in Old Palm. I remember hanging out at Ibar afterwards. And they're sitting there drinking beers with, with everyone else. Like just normal guys, very down to earth. So it was really cool to see them in contention. I would have liked to see them both uh, you know, be, be there ready to go on Sunday. But it is what it is. Um, so let's talk about Saturday. Well, Saturday I started with Berger and Dan Berger. He who, always plays well. And he... In 2015, he had that playoff with Patty Harrington, yeah. and they went to three playoff holes. He had to finally, he lost on 17. But he's had injuries the last couple of years, but he came back and actually hung in there. I mean, he shot well every single day. So I started watching him, and it was, it was just great to actually, it was good when you're out there, you could follow different golfers, but it was difficult for me to decide who was going to follow. There was no, usually Tigers in the field or Rory yeah. or whatever. I can follow, but I didn't really know. So then I followed Woodland because Woodland won the, uh, I was at Pebble Beach last year when he won that tournament. I thought he was, I thought, Woodland and Fleetwood were the two premier golfers that I felt yeah. like were in their primes that were ready to take over. And uh, he went birdie, bogey, birdie, bogey. And then on nine, <laughs> double bogey. And it sort of set him up. He was he ended up the day plus one at 74 or plus one. Uh, but Sun Jm at one point was leading the tournament at four under, but he bogeyed 15 and 16 to drop back. And Fleetwood was like almost like sitting back like a horse in terms of whatever. Because he was like, I'm look, watching him all day as I'm commentating and walking around the course, seeing where he's at. He's at two under, then he's three under. But then and he birdied seven. He first of all, he had a bogey on 15, which was one of the best bogeys. He had like a 40 foot putt to save bogey on 15. Mm -hmm. Then he birdied 17 with another long putt, and then he birdied 18. So he finished with a 500 to take the, the lead on Sunday. Let's uh, move into Sunday because I'm with you. I really thought, looking at the way Fleetwood played all weekend, that he was going to take it down on Sunday, and it just wasn't the case. Well, it was an interesting grouping in terms of how the, the pairings were. Uh, Fleetwood uh, was 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 paired with Brandon Steele, and then Donald and Westwood played again. So they have these veteran European players that are the next field. And mm -hmm. then it was, uh, then there was, then later there was Sun J.M. and uh, Mackenzie Hughes that were, that were, part, that were, that were together. And the interesting thing about Hughes and uh, Sun J.M. is that uh, their Alban Choi was the caddy for him because M said when he was at the Genesis, he had difficulty. He doesn't speak English or he doesn't speak it. It's not his first language. And he had trouble communicating with his caddy.
Cincinnati. And Choi has played this tournament, not played the tournament, played the course many times, lives in the area, and felt like he could be, and he's also played on the Corn Ferry Tour, which is the minor league tour, felt like he could help him out as being the caddy. So you had a player being your caddy. But also, all of it was in is Mackenzie Hughes' wedding. So they were all these three guys <laughs> knew each other really well. So, so, so you actually had a couple of the pairing groups. You had Westwood and Donald who had played like eight Ryder Cups with, yeah. between each other. And then you have this. So it was it was interesting about that. And and on Sunday, I liked Fleetwood where it wore a golden bear yellow a shirt, just like Tom Jack Nicholas. They were encouraging people to wear yellow that day. So I liked the shirt that he wore. And Woodland wore that American shirt that he wore when mm-hmm. he won the U.S. Open last last year at P, at the uh, at Pebble Beach. And so start the day with Fleetwood's five under, Steele's four under, Donald Westbrook are three under, Burgers two under. Um, and then, but I so I started earlier with Woodland. So I was following him like, there's got to be someone to charge. Like, they're so grouped together. I was waiting for someone to like go birdie, birdie, birdie to start. Now, Ben Om did that. He went and got to four under, but Woodland never got that big time start that I felt like somebody before Fleetwood tees off so just put some pressure on him. Fleetwood tees off. He gets a birdie on one, a birdie on two. So now he's seven under with a three strokes lead. And I'm like, he's running away with this. This is all over. I picked the right guy to follow. He's this and that. And then he go, he's going to the par five third hole, which I felt he could birdie that that hole. Is that people wouldn't birdie in the hole. The uh, par fives, that was the easier than 18. And then he doesn't birdie. He had a birdie putt, but he missed that. And he did not make another birdie until the 17th hole, which is just Crazy. amazing. And he had three bogeys. And he just, everything fell apart for him uh, the, the rest of the time. On the on six, the Bird Island hole, he hit the cart path. And then he had, then it, it, it was all over. Like when you're watching, following these golfers, and they're, 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 they're scared of the water. So they go and they overcompensate. And then you're walking in their galleries. And you're seeing them hit out of the galleries. And they're on pine straw. So it was not really thick rough. But the pine straw was hard for them to get their footing straight and they're making tough putts and they're going through trees mm-hmm. so it's really exciting to see them it really challenged them, them to make some stuff and then on 8 Fleetwood had a complete disaster it was a bunker on approach and then another bogey so he ended up being at 5 and in and Steele were also at 5 so it's like a three way tie at that point for 5 I mean everything was just happening so fast and then but 13 was the keyhole Mackenzie Hughes was in the bunker on 13 which is not that hard par 4 without it actually played was the easiest hole but he was in the bunker he was able to get a birdie chipped in a bogey a birdie from the uh, from the bunker, but then when I was following Fleetwood and Steele on that same hole, they went into a fairway bunker. Fleetwood couldn't even get out of the bunker, mm-hmm. so he had to, he just barely got had to hit again. Steele went from bunker to bunker, almost playing like that. They both bogeyed thirteen, so they fell back to four, and that's really when Fleetwood gave up the lead, and and that an in was able to be at, at five under, so in took that lead. Then Hughes sank at seventeen. They're now they're like two groups ahead. Mackenzie Hughes sank a fifty-four footer to go to minus five. Crazy, and then in goes up there. So it just at that point goes, okay, he sank like a 15-footer to go up to minus six. And then you're, I'm back with Fleetwood, and Fleetwood has to know, you see with the boards, that he's now two shots behind, and he's on 16. On 16, He uh, he misses a chip, and he barely, he could have had a miraculous shot on 16, almost chipped it in. And on 17, he, ha- he sank, I think it was like a 25-footer. It was a tough-looking putt. So he, sa- he sank that, and that, so now he's one, he's one back. And Steele is two back, and they're going into the final into 18. Now, on 18, in at the same time, this is all going on. I mean, that's what's so exciting on TV. This is all going mm-hmm. on at the same time. In 
chipped in to par. We chipped on the green and saved a par on, on, on 18 to stay at six, where he could have gone to seven and probably won the tournament yeah. if he got birdied that hole. But Kenzie Hughes had a chance to birdie, wasn't able to birdie that state at five. But then on Fleetwood, he gets he drives off 18, right in the middle of fairway, just needing a birdie to tie. Just all we needed was the birdie to take it in a playoff. And he goes over the water on 18 to try to get the eagle, and it goes in the water and he loses the, the, the tournament. It cost him $300,000. And we talked about this, is that I just... If it was in who was trying to do that, he's 21 years old, trying to do on a 29-year-old Fleetwood or what. But the fact that Fleetwood knows that in had been in probably for 45 minutes at the clubhouse, why not bring him back, play the playoff yeah. hole, and, and and he's more experienced and would have done that just like Harrington and beat Berger and do it that way. It's exactly I the just, same. It's like you go for two on the road when you're the underdog. You don't mm-hmm. go for at home. You go for the tie and play for the overtime, that type of thing. It, uh, it looked to me like he really thought he had a good shot at it. Meanwhile, nobody had been hitting these all all weekend long. Brendan steals next to him and put one in the water trying to do the same thing. It's not his shot. He had to hit a cut instead of a draw. I, I just, you know, talking to a lot of people today, I'm not a competitor like they are. And some of these guys are like that in a sense that they just, I'm going for the win. I, I have a chance to win. I'm going for it. And other people would be like me and you and probably just like, you know what, let me play this strategically. I can't knock the guy. He's hitting the shot, not me. But to me, it is crazy to go for the eagle there. No, and there was, and uh, M just lost uh, at the Sanderson Cup tournament the same way. He had, he was in the clubhouse with the lead, so they, they, they got tied, and then he lost it. And he said this year, this time he didn't want that to happen. He really had nothing he was able to do about it. But um, I think that it was interesting. It, he, I, in is the anti-Tiger Woods, uh, Kawhi Leonard type of player. Played 35 tournaments. We said 35 tournaments last year, 18 this. In the interview room, he's like, like, I, I love playing golf. If I wasn't on the tour, I'd be playing golf no matter what. I play every day. That's what I want to do. I, why would I not play with an opportunity to play on the PGA Tour and make money and win $1.2 million like he won? Rather, I just play around his own course. I mean, he's not those type of guys that want to, he says, I like to play golf. I play every time. That's what I want. And we wouldn't have to worry about the Honda Classic about who's in, where's the tournament, when's it scheduled. If everybody golfer was like certain <laughs> to him, they would be ever. And he, in the interview, he was very enthusiastic. He was fun. He, he doesn't speak English, but I think once he gets starts speaking English, I, I think people are going to love him. He seemed he was very entertaining and he smiled and I think he's a great guy. I think I I feel that he's going to have this is a good win. And I liked how he won the tournament. We do have our uh, guest of the evening on the line. It's Billy Ripken, former Major League Baseball player, current analyst. He's an author as well. Billy, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Oh, thank you for having me. What's up? <laughs> we were just we we're talking. We we're just talking some golf there, Billy, for a little bit. I mean, a big story of the day is you saw Mike Trout at a driving range hit the ball over the the screen. I don't know if you saw a video of that. So I think that's the mixture of baseball and uh, and golf. Uh, of course, I saw it, and then of course I saw all the articles written about is he the next two sports star? Come on, <laughs> Bridge at a uh, Top Golf event. Come on. <laughs> So, uh, Billy, you have a book called Stay to Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. And I read it today. I loved it. I encourage anyone to get it. It's not the tech book. Don't think you're reading Bill James' Baseball Abstract with a million stats and everything. It is a phenomenal book. And and I, and I I the first, before we start talking about the book, talk about you gave a lot of credit to your father, Cal Sr. And you sort of gave him credit saying, look, he might have been old school, but he was also new school. So explain sort of what your motivation to write the book and what what Cal Sr. gave you in terms of your background in baseball? Well, I think Cal Sr. gave me an awful lot, and then I was able to take some of my experiences with kind of like his um, 
maybe oversight or how he laid the foundation, and I could run with it in different directions. But the main reason I wrote the book was I just felt that over the past few years, the new school is now in charge, and the new school uses these metrics, and the new school uses all these analytics. And I just wanted to make a point that the old school guys have always used numbers and have always used information to come up with a plan. And I don't know if we've lost sight of that or if we never knew it, but uh, the difference between old and new is the old school guy has baseball experiences to draw from. So I just wanted to kind of get out there, and I, I listen to the games now, and there's so much talked about in the game that's confusing to me. I was just trying to put a little guide out there to maybe help some people if they felt the same way. Well, and I appreciate you writing this book because I had my father at a spring training game and he's always asking the traditional questions like, how many wins does this person have? And what's their batting average? And how many runs batted in? And there were like some 20-something computer nerds that were some scouts for some team behind us. And you could see them like almost looking at my dad as like a dinosaur for asking these crazy questions like, who cares about wins? And who cares about these other statistics? And then I read your book and I'm like, wow, you think wins are important. You think batting average is important and runs batted in are important. I mean, we used these for 100-some years in baseball. They just didn't go away. So I like the fact that you you wrote a book that sort of says, look, you can you can still look at these numbers and, and these statistics, and they are important. Yeah, and look, I'm all for more information. I really am. I'm all for new numbers, but they have to apply to the game of baseball. And for some of the new school to come in and say average doesn't matter, for some of the new school to say RBIs don't matter, total, is totally offensive to an old-school baseball guy. I don't have to look anywhere past the 2019 world champion Washington Nationals. The best hitter in the lineup, Anthony Rendon, hit third. He led the league in RBIs. The next best hitter in the, in, on the team was Juan Soto. He hit fourth, and he still drove in over 100 runs. Even though Rendon drove in the league-leading amount of RBIs. So if we need to score runs to win games, we need to have guys drive in runs, and I just don't understand how you can blindly discount the RBI or blindly discount average when more good results out of a hit than a walk any day of the week, and driving in runs is an important way to win games. Yeah, I liked what you talked about batting average because you said that with the new school thinking, it's just like take the walk, take the walk, take the walk. And you're like, well, sometimes if you're a good hitter, you do have to expand your range. You just don't, if you're going to hit doubles and home runs, you should really expand your range and, and, and drive in those runs. Don't just take another walk and have a hitter that's worse than you up at bat. Yeah, and the, look, the theory is, and this is not a bad mindset or theory, but the new school believes the hitter's job is to go up there and not making out. So with that said, if you have a 400 on base percentage, you're on base 40% of the time. I get it. But would you really take a guy who walks 40 times in 100 at-bats with no hits over a guy who gets 35 hits and no walks over those same 100 at-bats? One's a 400 on base percentage, one's a 350 on base percentage, but the guy who gets hits is definitely going to do more good for the team in that scenario of those 100 bats than a guy who just walks 40 times and doesn't swing it. 
Right. And then you mentioned in your book the two stats that I guess you would call them dirty words that in your in not I'm putting that words in your mouth. It'd be launch angle for an hitter because you really are because it's like if someone says, well, they can't be good. They have the wrong launch angle. And you showed how Mookie Betts and Christian Ellis have completely different launch angles and they both were MVPs two years ago. Well, launch angle is the most misused term, and then I believe it's the most misinterpreted term after it's misused. Because <laughs> the, the connotation is when they watch a game, is the launch angle is the swing itself, and that's not the case. The launch angle is nothing more than the ball coming off of the bat. So if the new school thinkers would have came in and called that exit angle, I may not have included that in my book as a chapter, but you're right, Mookie Betts, Christian Yelich, two entirely different launch angles in 2018. Yelich with a 4.9, Mookie Betts with an 18.4, and yet Christian Yelich at 36 homers and Mookie Betts at 32. So to try to come up with this idea that someone worked or improved his launch angle in the offseason is pretty much ridiculous in my way of thinking because did you improve it to go up or did you improve it to go down? And the assumption is higher is better, you can hit three fly balls to the catcher. You'll have a launch angle of 90 degrees, and you'll be 0 for 3 with three <laughs> flyouts to the catcher. You're leading the league in launch angle, and you're 0 for 3 with three flyouts to the catcher. And then the other word that you that is, I guess, a dirty word is for pitchers. We're going to go on them. Is the spin rate and like your and your comment about the spin rate is it's this obsessive uh, of you know the the, set, the the new school loves the spin rate. And you made a comment in the book like there's people with great spin rates that are in single A ball. Yes, and and the idea look spin rate is a tool, and I would use it as a tool. But the problem is once again once we get one of these fancy new terms. Everybody wants to use it, abuse it, and then it becomes the norm, and people don't understand why they're necessarily using it. Or a listener at home sitting there going, oh, he has a really good spin rate. That must be it. No. First of all, first and foremost, strike one is the best pitch in the game, and pitchers who can throw strike one, regardless of their spin rate, quality strike ones, are going to be ahead of the game. But I saw Cal Eldred, pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers back in my day, when I was out in Arizona recently, and I came up to him and I said, hey, Cal, you threw high fastballs and only threw 90 miles an hour. How did you do that without knowing what your spin rate was? Of course, there was very sarcastic uh, connotation to my question, and Cal Eldred said, well, because the hitters popped it up or swung and missed it. And we <laughs> at the old school had this old adage, the hitters will let you know what you can and cannot do. And in Cal Eldred's case, he didn't need someone that could, you know, perfectly calculate his four-seam spin rate. He knew his fastball was different than other guys living upstairs, so therefore he threw it. And then the other pitching stat that, that we talked about briefly a little bit is about wins. And I, I loved your chapter because that was what I was talking like My most favorite chapter in the book is that like wins are important. And you, and you reference about the year between DeGrom who had 10 wins and Scherzer 18. And then you, and you talk about in terms of even the World Series this past year with Scherzer and Strasburg. And, and back to the, play, the, the pitchers that I remember, Fernando Valenzuela, who maybe didn't have the perfect stuff and would give up 12 hits in a, in a nine-inning game but only give up one run. The idea is that, yeah, wanting to win a game is really really important and that there you got to give credit to someone who actually wants to stay in that game and get that win. Yeah, and in DeGrom's case, look, the past few years, um, the Mets hitters just have not given him anything. And I do believe in other numbers. I do believe in ancillary numbers that, that aid into it. 
And I do say in the book that I'll concede the wind doesn't matter as much as it once did. And that's part of the reason because the teams don't use their pitchers the same way. Uh, the starting pitcher doesn't seem to go long enough to qualify. The bullpen can give it up, although I do believe that's a little bit in the um, minority category as far as uh, reasons why it shouldn't matter. But the guys that can stay in the game and the guys that refuse to lose need to be acknowledged. And I think what happens with some of the new way of thinking is it's all about the ancillary numbers. And it's okay if you win or lose as long as you throw a quality start. And I so disagree with that because if you're winning by one, and you hang a slider with first and second and a one-two count and give up a three-run homer, and now you're losing by two, and you come off the field and say, oh, but I had a quality start, <laughs> that's maybe not a guy that you want on your team. So guys who know how to maybe not necessarily win anymore, but the guys who refuse to lose are the ones I like. Well, I mean, it's funny because we talk about it in other sports now, and it's also even given so much credit for basketball. It's like, oh, LeBron doesn't hit the shot at the end of the game like Jordan did. Like, we give so much credit for the who's going to hit the game-winning shot in, in basketball and who's going to lead the drive in football. You can have a terrible game and as a quarterback, but if you lead that fourth-quarter drive and win, then that's all it's always. So it's funny that you're saying it's not as important in baseball or, or totally dismissed, whereas in the other sports right now, it's given, oh, that's a winner. that we want, we want the guys who hit the game-winning shots and lead the game-winning drives. Well, there's certain um, thought process as, as well within, within the new school is um, there is no clutch. You know, those things don't matter. <laughs> well, we know from watching sports that that's not necessarily true. And Derek Jeter comes to my mind. He basically played a full season of postseason ball. You know, he played so many games in the postseason that his at-bats were like a full season in the regular season. And yet Derek Jeter's average – was better in the postseason than it was during his career. And that'll tell you that there are certain guys that can rise to the occasion and get things done when you have to. So just because you can't measure what is necessarily classified as clutch, don't discount it just because you can't measure it. We're talking to Billy Ripken, uh, author of State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball on Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9, the true oldies, and the book is from Diversion Books. And, and to, to compare it against to the golf match, we just had the Honda Classic here in West Palm Beach. Uh, everyone knows in golf, I mean, making those putts, it's a lot harder to make a 10-foot putt when you have a million dollars on the line than when you, at the, at, on Thursday at the opening round of a tournament. Well, I think anybody that's ever been out on a golf course knows that they're, when you're on the green, and even if you're just playing with friends in a foursome, and you got a little bit of glue on maybe some uh, skins or whatever, you're standing over a four-foot putt, and uh, you're feeling the pressure of doing that. So it takes different individuals to be able to separate themselves at certain moments, and golf is a great example. The free throws in basketball or the last shot's a great example, and the quarterback who do you want the ball in the hands of which quarterback coming down the stretch? Because some guys refuse to lose, and some guys kind of, yeah, maybe it wasn't my day. And I don't think I want the maybe it wasn't my day guy. <laughs> um, and then also your book is great. I, I loved how you talked about the shift and about the evolution of the shift. And you said, boy, we've, been, we've had the shift for a while. And, and you also talked about how people change like Joe Madden when he was the Rays used the shift more than anybody. And with the Cubs used it the least. So talk about the shift a little because in whether, and maybe even an idea, should the shift be banned? Because that's one of the, uh, Rob Ranford is considering that uh, option. 
Well, I certainly don't think the shift needs to be banned because I don't think I'm one of the uh, few maybe that don't think the shift works near as well as everybody claims it. So, like you said, the shift was not invented by the new school. Now, the shift gone wild has been invented by the new school. But I look in my book where the BABIP, which is a new school term, batting average on balls put in play, the average back in 2012 when 4,000 overshifts were played compared to the batting average on balls put in play in 2019 when 40,000 overshifts were in play is virtually identical. So if the batting average on the ball put in play, and I'm not counting home runs because that's not what this is about, so no strikeouts, no home runs, no walks, a ball put in play is the only thing the overshift can affect. And if the batting average is the same with 40,000 overshifts compared to 4,000 overshifts, that tells me league-wide that even if you're hurting one big donkey somewhere and you take 40 points off of his average, you're giving 20 other guys two points because the league-wide average says it's a push. <laughs> and then the other example I gave was Freddie Freeman, Cody Bellinger, and Anthony Rizzo, big left-handed hitters that usually the overshift is applied to. That seems to be the norm. Those three guys through the 2018 season roughly had about 700 plate appearances um, with the overshift applied against them hitting, which is a full season if you want to term it that way. Their career averages against the overshift are higher than their career average during the shift. But they keep shifting so against them. I it's don't <laughs> need, a, a, a need to see this overshift banned. I think there are players that can make the adjustment and do things. And even if it does hurt one guy badly, it's helping 20 or 30 guys very uh, moderately because the overshift in the and the overall league-wide Babbitt has virtually stayed the same from 2012 to 2019. So, so Bill, I, Billy, I, I follow baseball a lot. I know a lot about the history. You, I think your story about the designated hitter was, I mean, I did not know that. And if you might, could you just tell our listeners about why we don't have the designated hitter in National League? Because I didn't realize how close we came in the National League to have a designated hitter. And if Bill Giles, I guess, would have listened to his direction, we would have never, this would not even be a debate right now. Because Ruley Carpenter went fishing, and, and they didn't have cell phones back in the day. So when the American League adopted the DH, if we would have had cell phones or Ruley Carpenter of the Phillies didn't go fishing, I believe that we would have had the DH way back when. And if you remember, when the American League did take on the DH, it was listed as a three-year experiment. Well, clearly we know that three years has gone way farther than three years. But my other point with the DH is the National League in baseball is the only league that has the pitcher hit. And the reason why I say it's the only league, if you go to Japan, there's a DH. Korea, DH. If two AAA teams are playing each other in the United States, clubs have options to use DH, and sometimes they do. Double A, it's just DH. A ball, DH. College, DH. High school, DH. So if the National League is the only league in the world that has the pitcher hitting, I think it's time that we come across and we apply the same rules between the National League and the American League so we can stop this um, little bit of insanity, as I would call it, with the pitcher still hitting in that league. 
We're talking to Billy Ripken, who the author of State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball from Diversion Books. Amazing book, a great book. It's not just full of stats and everything. It is just great analysis. And if you sort of are harken back to the days of where you like when baseball, when you understand what wins are and runs batted in and that stuff, you understood those stats. He really shows why they're still important. So, Billy, I guess we do have to turn to something you didn't address in the book would be the Astros and, and even the Red Sox, too, about the sign stealing and, and your opinion on, on both the Astros and Red Sox and and what that what how prevalent it was in the game and how much you knew that people were you know were doing that at the time. Well, we'll leave the uh, the Red Sox alone simply because that still hasn't been kind of brought out. But the Astros certainly went above and beyond uh, the normal sort of kind of sign stealing. And the only reason I'm saying the normal kind of sign stealing, so, say back in the day, if we were playing against let's just say the Milwaukee Brewers when they were still in the American League East. Um, you kind of looked across the field. You looked at the manager. You looked at the third base coaching box. Yes, you looked at the catcher when you were on second base, but that was kind of you against them, team against team, individual against individual. And I equate this to that's where you were looking for poker players' tells. Were they giving you anything out of them being careless. And the Astros took it to poker player tells to being in the saloon in the Old West and hanging a big mirror behind the guy (laughs) he's playing poker with, and he's looking into the mirror to see his cards. And I think that we would all agree, if you're looking at a poker player trying to find his tells, that's competing. But if you're flat-out cheating and you've got a mirror up there and you're looking at it and you're getting it real time, there's just something that went way over the line right there. And I do think the commissioner's office, I think they did a really good job when they handed down the year-long suspension to the manager and the general manager of the team. I didn't think he was out of place with his uh, directive that he sent out earlier in 2017, excuse me, that he could go after the players. And I think he just left that alone. But let's be very clear, the punishment that the individual players are receiving is going to be ongoing for the next three, four years of their career, and the 2017 Astro Championship is going to be discussed in the next 30 years as being tainted. So I think the commissioner's office did what they could do at that point in time. I think the players had to be given some immunity so they could get to a certain point where they got a lot of information. And I do think once the Red Sox thing is over, uh, baseball is going to be better for it because the commissioner's office and the player association should get together and they should have clear uh, punishments moving forward if something like this ever happens again. No, I agree with you 100%. I, I felt like the commissioner did handle well. I thought got unfairly criticized. He couldn't um, put any punishments on the players. And you saw what happened with the Saints scandal, the New Orleans Saints, when Roger Goodell tried to punish the Saint players for the bounty gate. And then it just ended up in, in arbitration. And finally, Paul Tagliabue had to come in and, and handle it. Is there any, do you have any uh, opinions on should, they, should the trophy be vacated, the World Series trophy? You know, I can't do that because then I think the commissioners open up Pandora's box on going through record books and striking this and deleting that. I I think they are what they are. Um, The Astros team won the 27 World Series. The fact that this investigation came out now, I just can't turn back time and go ahead and take that from them. Um, The fact that we're going to be talking about this 20, 30, 40 years down the road, 
Um, everybody's going to have their opinion on their uh, tainted title. And the individual players themselves, their reputation took a large hit moving forward. So for, just pretend that one player starts the year 0 for 20 out of the gate for the Houston Astros. That opens the door for people to say, well, they don't know what's coming. They can't hit. Now take it further. One player gets out of the gate 15 for 20. Someone's going to say they found new ways to cheat. So I'm pretty sure that the individual players are going to be wearing this for quite some time. I agree. I agree. We're talking to Billy Ripken's State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball based on diversion books. I think it's going to be available on Amazon and all the bookstores, and it's a great book. You definitely, I, I read it today. It's a phenomenal book. I guess one last question, Billy, before we let you go is we're down here in West Palm Beach, and we have a lot of good teams in terms of the Astros, and we talked about uh, the Marlins, which hopefully are trying to be a little bit better, and the Cardinals. But uh, I think the uh, Washington and Nationals have not, the scandal has sort of diminished, or people are not talking about what kind of run the Nationals had last year, their playoff run, the World Series. Uh, talk about a little about what happened last year with the Nats, and maybe they should get a little more love and, and more discussion, because it seems like we're only talking about the Astros and the, the, the team they share their spring training park with. Well, they should get some love, and they're probably the only team that's not annoyed with the Astros, because they took care of business. <laughs> And beat them. But I will say this when the start of the playoff season started last year, I was up there on our usual prediction show right before the, it started. And I picked the Nats to win the whole thing um, out of the wild card spot. Got really lucky because they got by Milwaukee. But the reason why I liked them was the reason why they should be getting some love. They got some big donkeys that stand on the mound that go out there and get after it. And they put a lineup out there that refused to succumb, shall we say, to some of the new school and thinking that a strikeout's just an out. And I think it was very evident during the postseason how they pitched and how they went out there and battled at home plate every at-bat, never giving up an at-bat. Um, Rendon getting boring sack flies during the uh, postseason, uh, which are ribbies, by the way and doing his thing. So it was so much fun to watch those guys. And, yes, you're right. Some of all the controversy that's surrounding, you know, this investigation that the Astros went through, the investigation now that the Red Sox are going through, um, I think the Nats kind of like this because they're laying low. And I think they're pretty poised in a very tough NL East division again because the Braves got a little bit – well, Braves are they're Braves. They didn't necessarily get better because they lost Donaldson. But the Phillies and the Mets both did. So I think that's a really strong division, but there's no reason to think the Nats aren't at the top of that list as far as that conversation goes. They're really good. We've been talking to Billy Rickens, uh, the author of State of Play, Old School Guide to New School Baseball on Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. Uh, thanks a lot, Billy, for coming on the show. We'd love to have you back another time. And, and uh, hopefully, I mean, this book was great. So start writing some more books so we can, we can have you back on. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, I appreciate it, and you send me the invite, dude. I'll come back on your show. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, it's 7.53. It's Ira on Sports on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsam. I want to slide back to the Honda here for a second. We didn't get to wrap that up. You want to move on? Um, I just uh, How about the article that you sent me? Uh, I was reading about Sung Im today, and there's a recommended article like, hey, read the next article, and it's an insider 
uh, from PGA Operations spoke to Golf Digest and said they're probably moving the Honda Classic next year. Immediately I said, well, that's great because we're kind of in a bad spot right now, but when you did the analysis on it, this might not be a good thing. Well, I think the article you sent, and it's hard to understand exactly where we don't want to give out the wrong information, but if they put it after the Players' Championship, you don't want to be after a major. All the players count as a major because usually that's the event that everyone skips. I mean, what's the event after the Masters, the event after the US Open, PGA Championship, the British Open? You don't want to be that event. Yeah. I, I would hope the Honda, they can move the world. There's a match play event that the in, in New Orleans. They, they could move that event, which is two weeks before the Masters. It'd be great if the Honda was in that position of two weeks before. Let some everyone play the Honda. They're at home. Everybody lives here. Let them rest up and then go to Augusta. I think it fits in perfectly to have another tournament after that. But I think the Honda, the position that a Honda should want to be in is, is two weeks before the Masters. I really want to talk uh, hoops real quick. We got... Uh, Zion has really come on faster than I thought he was going to. And this kid looks every bit of a superstar. I, I was a little bit skeptical. And then when John Morant comes into the league and is jumping out of the gym, I'm thinking, man, th maybe John Morant was the pick. And, and I'm looking like I was wrong there. Well, I just... Last night, Honda's over. I'm totally exhausted, but I knew Zion and LeBron were coming yeah. <laughs> up. And I want to, I'm going to say that I've watched basketball all the time in regular season. This might be the best regular season game. I, Zion played great. He ended up with, but it wasn't just how many points. He had 35 points, 12, he only missed four shots. He 11 13 from foul line, seven boards. He was unstoppable. And they had Dwight Howard, Jamal McGee. But it was, this is what you like about basketball. LeBron and Zion played against each other. Zion had the ball, LeBron was guarding him. LeBron had the ball Zion was guarding. It was just amazing how they're going head-to-head. -head. And LeBron was playoff LeBron, like NBA Finals LeBron. He was going crazy. And there was no Anthony Davis in the game. And LeBron was making shots. There was, everyone had them shots. Zion had this over the uh, alley-oop over Kyle Kuzma's head, which is, I thought he was going to take Kyle Kuzma's head with the ball and put them both <laughs> in the basket. And LeBron had a couple fadeaways. He came down and drained a three. These moves he had, just a great, fun game to watch. I loved it. I love the Pelicans. I love Ingram, Ball, and Holiday. They're battling for the last playoff spot. So I was excited with that. And uh, uh, so I, it was just, to me, that was, I was just so excited for that game. It was like, what a great basketball game in the middle. We were still a month and a half away from the playoff basketball. I loved it. So Ira, we do have a, a, an extra minute or two here before we, um, before we get into something else. And I want to talk a little NFL, just because I really don't know what's going on with the inner workings of it. This new CBA is coming up. They're trying to push for more games, apparently. They're trying to push for modified playoff structure. I don't want any changes. What do you think's going on here? What have you heard? No, I, I don't want it either. And I I, I like the way it is. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to feel like old school so much, but I think that I like the fact that it's hard. I like the fact that the two best teams in each conference get the bye. I think that makes sense. We can all understand two teams. The way they were going to shift it is only one team would get a bye. I like the fact that two teams get the bye. I don't want to have an extra team. And at Wild Card Weekend, I don't want to have three games on third. I don't, I like the fact that you, you end the season when there's a zillion games, you go in the playoffs and there's two games on Saturday, two games on Sunday. Then the next week you have the divisional games, two games on Sunday, two games on Saturday, and then you go uh, to the championship games and then Super Bowl. Like, I love that. I think it's perfect. Like, don't mess this up. Don't give me three games to watch, uh, which I think just, it's going to just dilute it. I think it's the perfect setup. I mean, some sports, not enough many people qualify. We talked about college football, but I think it's like perfect. And then I don't see going to 17 games. Like, it's fine. 16 is a great number. Yeah, I don't want to go to the 17th. You're also with 17. Do you realize that? Like, some teams are going to have nine home games. Other teams yeah. are going to play eight home games. It doesn't seem right. Uh, it looks like it might get passed. The NFL did something very smart. They're negotiating their TV deals 
in the end of the year. So they saw like a few more months, they're going to do the TV deals. They want to, this is a, so what they did is the way they vote is it's a union vote is that, is that most of the people in the NFL earn minimum, their minimum base minimum. Yeah. They like added 90% another. 90% of the league. Yeah, makes sense. So they, they literally doubled those salaries. So now they're going to get those type of votes. And they added some other things. They added more players to practice squads, more players on the roster, all these teams to get the votes. So the stars aren't going to get paid any extra by playing the extra game. So that's why you're seeing the Russell Wilson's come out and some other players yeah. saying, Look, I'm not Watt gonna, doesn't want it. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to support this. And I sort of agree with them. And they're like, well, we're going to take away one exhibition game and put a regular season. Well, that doesn't make any sense. There, nobody even plays in the exhibition games. Mm-hmm. They, but they feel like an obvious. Then they can't. And these NFL players know they can't pull the, the Kawhi Leonard school load management. They have to play. These, every game, was going to say, I'm going to sit out that game. So I think unless it's unless they won, I, I, I'm totally against it. I think the NFL is making, this is a mistake. I'm totally against this. Imagine, you know, some of the, one of the proposed things is two bye weeks. Or like forcing players to have two bye weeks, so there'd be games where guys had to sit out. You could go to a, you know, Patrick Mahomes uh, comes to Giant Stadium and it's week seven and he just doesn't play. It, the whole thing's bizarre to me. And think about how, you know, you talked about dilution. Think about it, last year in the AFC, the Ravens had the number one seed locked up with like four weeks to go. So what is all those teams that are still really good? What are they playing for? To be the two seed and have the home game, that's great, but they want to win that bye, and it keeps those teams playing their best football up until week 17. And then, and really, in the essence, you're also getting, you're really putting a 7-9 and nine team. Look, the Steelers last year exactly. would, have made like, the, yeah. would have made the playoffs, <laughs> and I'm still against it. Like, I don't, I, like, it's too much. I think that make it make it special. Make The, the beauty of the NFL is this regular, they, they, they and college football have this great regular season where everybody on Sundays is in a bar watching these games because every game matters. They're betting in every game. I think, why not just leave it at 16. It's the perfect number to have the playoffs. Like, I think they have, the, why don't mess with perfection? <laughs> and they do have perfection pretty much uh, with the NFL. They, they keep cramming it down our throats and we keep liking it. So uh, I, I understand why they do it, though. Uh, let's shift to college basketball before we wrap it up here. Um, wh- what's going on here? Because this has been a, a topsy-turvy season. Well, it's it's crazy. And next week, we're going to have Danny Tarkanian on, whose father, Jerry Tarkanian, was the great coach of the UNLV Running Rebels, mm-hmm. a national championship uh, winner and, and some of the best teams I've ever seen. So he wrote, had just had a book out. He's going to come on and do a preview because we're at the end. A lot of these schools, Gonzaga, Dayton, they finished the regular season. They're in conference tournament play this week and then everyone else the following weeks can play conference tournament in two weeks we're going to have March Madness start so it really the college football season college basketball season was very compressed it looks like Kansas right now they were the unanimous number one this week people are looking at them as like this prohibitive favor which clearly they're not I think that anyone who thinks that they're so by far ahead they just might be better than everyone else but I don't would not to say still got to win six games prohibitive. in a row no, in the tournament <laughs> I mean Gonzaga is the two seed they're 29 and two Dayton's 27 and two the three the, I mean the three, ranked third in the country. Baylor is ranked fourth. They lost to TCU uh, this week. Uh, San Diego State's 28-1. and one. So you have teams like Gonzaga, Dayton, San Diego State, you're questioning who they're playing. Now Kentucky, which started out losing some games. Now they've won eight in a row. Kentucky's now ranked sixth. They look exciting. Boy, Florida, if you're a fan of Florida State, this might be the year. Finally, get mm-hmm. to the Final Four, win the national championship. Ranked seventh. They're, they're set. They had a big win against Louisville this week. And then you hope they do well in, in the ACC tournament. And then you have teams like Seton Hall, which I, I, no one even talked about Seton Hall for years. They're ranked number eighth in the country. Uh, they beat Marquette and St. John's this week. And then Duke, of course, my favorite team, uh, they lost a wake in overtime, and then they ended up losing Losing to UVA this week. So they lost Crazy. two games. They played Carolina this week. And I do want to add one thing because I forgot to say we were talking about Zion. 
I think that I have no idea what happened to Duke last year, and I, this is credit of R.J. Barrett, Coach K, and Cam Reddish. When you look at how Zion dominated the Lakers last night, and this is we're still only like 10 or 11 months reviewed from the, from the NCAA tournament last year, how he did not score 40 points a game and just throw it to him. There's nobody on this Michigan State team that beat a Duke when I was at that game. I kept looking at that, and R.J. Barrett's shooting 35-foot three-pointers, and Cam Reddish is shooting 35-point theaters. I said, just throw it to Zion every single time. He did that. I just don't understand how he would have just dominated. And I, I think he was too unselfish. R.J. Barrett was too selfish. And Coach K should have done something. I mean, it would have been better to have Zion and, no, and a bunch of nobodies on the floor. They would have won the national championship. I, I really felt that last year, Zion not winning being a national champion is a disaster. That's an interesting take. Imagine he had been on Murray State instead of John Moran. Not to, not to take anything away from John Moran, but you're right. This They totally... It's amazing to have three guys that are going to get drafted in the top nine. But if you're not beating every team with those three guys, what's the point? Might as well just have the, the great one. Well, that's and that's what I and you look at people like Lonzo Ball, Drew Holiday, and you saw the game that the Pelicans did, and and, and Alvin Gentry is a coach. They realized that Zion is dominating, so throw him the ball. That's why Lonzo <laughs> Ball. Now, why could Coach K not tell R.J. Barrett the Sit same down. thing, yeah. or, or just throw him the ball? But I, I watched Duke. I was at five, six of the games last year. I watched every one of them, and I how frustrating it was to watch R.J. Barrett just shoot. It wasn't just at the end of the game; it was during the whole game, and. Zion's taking like eight shot and nine shots, and I'm like, man, just give this guy like 20 shots. He's going to score 30 points. It's crazy. Do you, what do you think? What did Baylor get up to in football this year? Number five? In yes. The, what do you think the last time Baylor had a top five football and basketball team in the same year? <laughs> and then they have a great girls basketball team, too. <laughs> well, they, they are usually good yes. at, with the girls basketball. Ira, uh, did you happen to have a, a pedometer on this week to see how many miles you walked at the Honda? No, but my feet, uh, I, but I loved it. It was. It's exciting to be out there. It's exciting to be at the tournament. It's great for West Palm. Palm Beach. I think it was. I know it was. I don't think it was. I know that uh, people enjoy this tournament, uh, and it was just. I think it just. It's just the players love everybody. It's a great tournament. And I go to these other tournaments, and I just don't sense that. Even at the majors, you go to a major. At the end of a major, uh, people just walk. It's it's gone. Everyone, but people stay at the Honda. They stay at Saturday night. I mean, people were there till ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night, partying. There were tents. There were DJs. The, it was. It was. They make it a true fun event, and and the, and I like how they mix in with sports. So it's great to have the sports mix with the event. I think it's perfect. They do a great job. Ken Kennerly, fantastic, amazing. I mean, we're very lucky to have him run this tournament because yeah. as someone who goes to these other tournaments, it's not like this at what I say most, almost every other tournament is not run like this. I'm a proud Palm Beach Gardens resident, have been for a decade, and this is our this is our thing. It, everyone, and it's not just Palm Beach Gardens, but we, you know, Palm Beach Gardens calls it their home event, and everyone in Palm Beach County in South Florida kind of take takes ownership of the Honda Classic, and I think that's why it's so much better than, than some of these other tournaments. And the, the response from people that went and people that watched it, everyone had an amazing weekend. So, But that's why I was going to ask you where you're going this week. I was going to say you could take it easy after walking uh, PGA National, what, to 10 times over the past five days? <laughs> well, yeah, and it's. Uh, um, I think I'll watch, probably watch the Heat. Now, tonight, the Heat play the Bucks, and uh, that's going to be a key game. We didn't they talk had, about the Heat, but they've been on a rough stretch. They had two bad losses this week. They lost to Cavaliers, which was terrible when they when and then in the fourth quarter, they blew a 20-point lead. And then they lose the Minnesota Timberwolves, who have played all just their backups the entire game. And they, they lost to them at home. They had um, lost 19 of 20 at that point. Yes. And and <laughs> so it's it's not going to the playoffs. You want this to see the Heat. Just to, and tonight's going to be a good test for them. They're a four-point underdog at home to the Milwaukee Bucks. And if I didn't have the show, I'd have been down there. But it'll be Wednesday they play the Magic. I might go to the Magic game and see them. But, uh, uh, no, this is it's fun. A fun time. But we got the NCAA college basketball and then golf. Uh, 
we have Bay Hill coming up this week. We're going to talk about after the show. We are out of time. I want to thank Billy Ripken so much for stopping by. He was a great interview. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.